0: During this attack, they brought a woman down the cellar stairs who had who had broken open and part of her intestinal dra- drain mm-hmm. okay. was dragged behind her, you know, as they dragged her down the stairs. I remember that. She was dead. I mean, it was a corpse. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got caught while she was still outside.
1: That sobering account you just heard is just one of many experiences we're going to share with our listeners from our interview with Marta Warner. Prior to World War II, Marta was a young girl living in Germany during the ascendancy of Adolf Hitler. As a teenager, she would experience the horrors of war as her family was bombed out of their hometown in Frankfurt. In this first episode, we're going to feature clips that describe her firsthand accounts of how life changed for Marta and her family as the Nazi party increasingly controlled every element of their lives. I'll finish this intro by saying that many of her experiences may be disturbing to some members of our audience. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we feature oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how it still affects us today. All the veterans featured in this podcast were interviewed by us while serving as volunteers for the Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Our interviews, almost 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who lived in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often, you guessed it, right next door to us. Welcome to our journey. Hey, welcome, Warrior Next Door listeners. We've got a real treat for you today. My name is Tony Lupo, and my co-host... Ryan Fairfield is here to share with you um, a story that I doubt very many people have heard. Uh, What we have on tap today is someone who was not only living in Germany during World War II as a young girl, but was part of the Hitler Youth and was bombed out of her town and chased across most of Europe as the Russian and the Allies advanced to close or wrap up the news around the Nazi juggernaut, and so what we have for you today is someone, her name is Marta Warner, that uh, she's 91 years old, she was born in 1931, we've got a bunch of clips set up to share with you about her experiences, but what we're really excited about is being able to share... Um, World War II in this particular case from a completely different perspective. So for those of you history geeks that like to read the perspective of a war or a historical event through the eyes of the other side, the side not aligned with the history books you've read in your country, in our case, our country, this will be a real treat. And so, Ryan, how did we end up meeting Marta and being able to interview her?
2: So uh a mutual friend of ours, Eric Glosser, um, lives in uh around a Wasso area and he reached out to me or uh I can't remember if it was both of us on a like a duotech stream or whatever, um, mentioning that he had a friend that has a grandmother that was you know, that was from Germany and and grew up as part of the Hitler youth. And so that's when uh, you know, we decided, yes, let's definitely um speak to her if she's willing. And so we did this interview in February of 2022 of this year, just a short six months ago, roughly. And um, and it was it was something that we really didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, we've never interviewed someone who was on the business end of everything we've talked about. You know, yeah. of all the veterans we've interviewed, they've all been delivering the ordinance and uh, you know, uh, you know, make, you know making progress across the battlefield whether it was pacific ocean or whether it was the cbi or whether it was europe and this was the first time we had spoken to someone who had to endure all that with our war machine in europe yeah and 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 it's really
1: interesting and she's amazing too so she's you know from germany obviously (laughs) she was you know uh, born there in, in 1931 she's 91 years old now Uh, she goes, your name is Marta Warner and I can still, (laughs) so for those, Ryan said we interviewed her in Owasso. For those who may not know, that's a suburb of Tulsa that's just North of town. And so when we were doing some recording in Tulsa in the green barn, which is kind of the mothership for this podcast, for the most part, we drove up there, uh, we pulled in the driveway and it, you know, I don't know. Ryan, it doesn't matter how often we do this. I mean, do you still get a little butterflies in your stomach when you get introduced to a veteran like this that we're going to interview? Or in this oh, case, a civilian?
2: Especially when it's a cold one. I mean, it's a cold interview where this is set up by people other than the veteran. Yes. You know, you don't know whether they're, you're going to walk in and they're going to be receptive or they're going to be, you know, uh, not receptive. And so, and, anyway, continue. No, so when we walked I know where you're in, going with this. Yeah,
1: I think you know where I'm going. So we had <laughs> all our equipment, right? We had our all of our sound stuff and video stuff and everything. We knock on the door, not know what expect. And out of the side room comes this uh, older woman. She was not even five foot tall. <laughs> she had these crystal blue eyes. And she was, I would use the word taciturn, as she walked up to me with not an ounce of fear, trepidation or intimidation in her gait, in her style, in her gaze. And she stuck out her hand and she said in that thick German accent, I'm Marta, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) She scared me a little bit. I got to tell you that Marta was an intimidating human being. I was like, I mean, just, she was just you could tell that this was a human being that has seen some crap, and whatever you bring to the table is nothing compared to what she's already seen. What was
2: your first impression of her? Oh, I, I stood behind you. I hid my head <laughs> from her. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, when we got in the, in the living room there, you know, we're talking with Michael, who's her grandson, you know. We're like, oh, where's, where's, where's Marta at? He goes, oh, she's in the back room. She'll be out in a second. I'm like, okay, yep. so we're starting. We got all of our junk in there. We got our tripods and all this you know, gear. And, and then she comes out and she does what Tony just says. And then she's like, you know, what are you doing here? You know? And it's like, you know, <laughs> well, well, we're here to, you know, we're going to, we, we didn't know if maybe he hadn't spoken to her about this. Right. And this Cause was she, like she acted like,
1: she acted like we shouldn't have been there. And so you're telling her, we're looking at Michael like, dude, did you tell your grandma yeah. about this? But please And continue. then he's just
2: kind of being very stoic about it, you know, and then, and then, you know, we said, well, Tony's like, well, we're, you know, we're, we're here to interview you. You know, we have a podcast and, and, uh, you know, we'd like to record your story to, to, to do a series on you on our podcast. And she's like what are you going to say about me in this podcast? And anyway, she was very interrogative towards us and, and we stammered a little bit, you know, and, and, and because it was, she was very direct, but then I looked over and I saw her grandson standing away snickering and laughing (laughs) he knew she was just yanking our chain and And yanked them she did i was like oh my gosh she yanked us hard and so um so we had all this stuff sitting out we were getting set up you know and she was very very inquisitive about she's like what is all this equipment doing in here you know and i said well you know we've got a little bit of everything we've got a laptop we've got our phones we got we we were trying lots of different stuff that day yep but she was really interested in the technology. I yes. mean, she kept asking questions after the interview about it. She was just amazed. You could tell she's a very smart, brilliant, sharp person. And uh that will come out in this interview. You'll you'll see what we're talking about. She's a she's a she's a really uh uh sharp person. And so we um we got all of our stuff set up. And um, you know, it's funny. I think we probably left this part of the clip out. So, like the first forty 46 seconds of 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 the of the clip. You know, but that that we cut it out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I can hear Tony kind of stammering a little bit. You know. Oh, we I, cut yeah, That's why I cut it out. <laughs> no, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> was like... the, the, all you hear is the audio come on, and Tony's like, mm, uh, "Well, so, uh, so... Uh, did you get the? Well, uh, never mind. Let's <laughs> let's just start and." <laughs> You you knew we're supposed to be here,
1: right? And we're really doing this, and you're okay with it, right? Oh, it, was, was so, it was so glorious. Oh,
2: it, it was, was funny. It, we were both. We were both. I, I was. Tony was kind of taking the lead on the interview. I was kind of <laughs> sitting off the side, and you know, she she was fine. She was just establishing uh, who was really in control here, and it definitely was her. Of it course. was her. You know, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll admit it. Uh, she she was a very intimidating person, and but you know
1: what? I think what. It, I, I I have a hard time thinking of an interview we conducted where my mind was so frequently blown, where I had to change preconceived notions so frequently, and we've interviewed some people that have, all of them have depth to them in different areas, right? But I think the, the narrative that I grew up with um, as someone who grew up in Michigan in the 1980s was, you know, the Germans were duped by Adolf Hitler, they were brainwashed mm-hmm. by him. The German people were uniquely qualified to be dominated by someone like him, and um, and because of that, uh, they, they suffered horribly under the Nazi regime. And I think the biggest thing I got out of all of this is a, a new perspective about what the average German citizen had to face as Hitler rose to power, and young people like her—in this case, a young woman— were being Nazified in these schools, like in, in a in a very overt, explicit way. And there were so many things she shared with us because of her uh, her viewpoint, her vantage point on the other side of the looking glass from what most Americans have, that really that really kind of changed my worldview a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. did you feel
2: a little bit like that as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, myself, you know, uh, having been steeped in you know of course growing up in the united states and you know watching war movies and you know you know we're you know reveling in in our role in world war ii um you know i've thought for the longest time you know shame on the german people for letting a lot of this stuff happen especially with respect to the jewish you know um uh uh, holocaust that happened over there and everything but but the thing that i came out of this interview realizing was a i was I'm, I'm really was ignorant about it. And it's, and what I mean by that is there's so much more to things than we can possibly realize, yep. um, you know, and being an American, um, and maybe even just a person who was on the allied side of things, it's easy to get caught up in vilifying the other side, but many of these, uh, I mean, I would say the preponderance of the average German citizen wanted no part of this. They were, you know, sure that they were swept up in the, the national pride of having, you know, with Hitler being swept in the power, um, he, he gave them a great sense of national pride and he gave them a great sense of purpose. And after World War I, Germany really craved that. And so it was easy for them to, I, I could see how they got drawn into this, but then it became uh, small steps towards the dictatorship and the, you know, the authoritarianism that, that came along with all of this that led to the horrible outcome that was the Third Reich. I, I,
1: I agree. And, and really, I think to sum up what you and I are saying is I think what I learned from MARTA, in addition to some of the other reading that I've done over the years, is the Germans were not uniquely qualified to have a dictator like this take over their country. It can happen under certain circumstances anywhere to yep. any country. If there's a crisis, if there's not security, if a strong man or woman can rise to power and provide short-term gains that, you know, in the long term are hurtful, but you can't see that in the short term, anyone, any country is susceptible to that. And I think that was something that I think you're going to hear more of. So I think, uh, I think at this point, I think people probably want to hear a little bit from Marta and her amazing, scary German accent. <laughs> I mean, what I mean by scary is, mm-hmm. let's face it, the German accent is is very abrupt. It's not like the romantic language of the French. And when Marta says something, it sticks a little more than when Americans say something. Well, you know, opinion. she even
2: mentions that in at one point in the interview how you know uh, she 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 does not uh, she was not graced with uh, the ability to be sweet. You know, so, and she said that herself, you know, and she laughs about it and everything, you know, it's just part of, you know, her nature and the nature of her to be very direct, you know, and, and say things. And, uh, so, and, and you'll see, I think that's going to endear you to her. It's going to endear the listener to her because she says, she says, uh, she, excuse me, she says things that, uh, most people would probably pull or they would pull the punches on. And honestly, I think there are things that she says that are so um, applicable to what we see going on in our world today. And you can look at it from whatever side of the coin you want. Uh, There's a lot here to chew on. And I think that it's the sort of thing that um, could give everyone pause. And it really has me, um, whenever I've listened to her interview and everything. It maybe has really made me think about a lot of things with respect to our society and, you know. And that's that's why we do this, Ryan. This is why we study history
1: is so we have different lenses to look through so they can help guide us Mm -hmm. if we pay attention to these through what's happening now, because like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, and so we're going to start this off. There's really kind of three pieces to this inter- to this particular series of episodes on Marta. We're going to spend some time talking about her as a girl growing up in Frankfurt, Germany, which is a fairly large industrial town uh, in 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 western Germany, not too far from the border, uh, and then we're going to transition from that to the war. And the horrible experiences that she had during the war, which were extremely common for the average German citizen at that time as they were being squeezed from both directions by, uh, the Russians in the East and the uh, Americans and the Brits and Canadians and the Poles and the French and everyone else on the West. And then there's like a series that we're going to pick up on Yen, which is just kind of a, a, a series of really interesting anecdotes. That She shared with us that don't fit particularly well in any single place, but need to be shared more widely. Um, so we're going to start it off with the first clip. Normally, what we do when we interview a World War Two vet from United States is say something effective. Hey, where were you when Pearl Harbor was attacked? And uh, we're not going to be able to do that here. Because Pearl Harbor didn't mean a whole lot uh, to the Germans at that time. We're going to talk to her about what it was like being born in Frankfurt, what school was like, and she's going to share with you, hey, this is this is what it's like being a young girl in Germany uh, early uh, in the early into mid-1930s. As an avid cyclist, I could not be more happy to announce a new sponsor, Boogie Bikes. Did you know that 97% of bikes purchased in the United States are built by foreign manufacturers? Well, Boogie Bikes carefully selects the best global components and builds your bikes in the USA. In fact, Boogie Bikes is located in a small town in Wisconsin and builds bikes with an emphasis on quality. Boogie e-bikes feature a powerful 750-watt motor to assist you while you pedal and can be enjoyed for hours on a single charge. They're an environmentally friendly way to commute to work, allow for people of any age and experience level to get and stay in shape, and most importantly, they're a blast to ride. Join the fastest growing segment in the cycling community and support local businesses by visiting boogiebikes.com and use the code FREEDOMBIKES to receive $50 off at checkout. Boogie Bikes also offers military discounts to our nation's heroes. Visit boogiebikes.com to order. Let's ride. I was born
0: 1931. So... I was in the perfect time period to be totally educated hmm. by Adolf Hitler, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, my f- starting school, six years old, the first half of that school year, we had a teacher, I'll always remember her because she was tall, handsome, and she wore Florentine hats, those wide-brimmed hats, and dresses all the way down to the ankle. I always remember that. And she'd come in and she'd say, good morning, children, let us pray. So here comes the first big vacation, the summer vacation. And when we came back to school, we didn't have that teacher anymore. Our new teacher was a young woman, and it was Heil Hitler. Oh. There was no more Let Us Pray. It was Heil Hitler. Mm. And that was the start.
1: Do you remember, like, what grade or year this was? First grade. So there was would have been 19? Uh, huh? So you remember what year it was when they when you saw this, this transition? 37. 1937. 1937.
0: Yeah. Okay. You know, the first half of the school year, I was six years old, so six and a half. So, 1937.
1: So, how did the kids respond to this very
0: abrupt shift? How can you respond when you're six years old? Yeah. You don't. You do as you're told. Yeah, told there is no, oh, wow, you know, that was different. It was new. It was interesting. And it was cool. How do you expect? Uh, I mean, little kids. They do as they're told, most of them, most of the time.
1: (laughs) Which is exactly why the Hitler Youth was such an important part of the Nazi regime. And really, any authoritarian regime is going to have some sort of youth movement to inculcate kids at a very young age, as you heard her, right? She goes, what are you going to do? We're kids. That's what happened. But what struck me about Mm. this clip, Ryan, was how abrupt this particular experience was. This... This was like, you know, one, one part of the year they had a, a teacher in there and they were saying prayers and doing the typical pre-World War II German thing, and then the next day someone comes in and tells them completely different. Was that a surprise to you as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I guess I didn't grasp at the time um, what year that it was, that it was, you know, 1937. Yeah. Um, you know, I know at that at that point... Um, you know the the Hitler Youth numbers were really starting to grow.
1: Um, we have a series of clips like this where she just talks about what it's like being in school, the struggles that she had, the fact that she was she is a very she was a precocious child, a very intelligent woman, uh, well read, and it caused problems for her. So go ahead and listen to this next clip. Uh, it's actually a composite clip. There's a couple of them where she speaks to that
0: teaching when relatively normal. You know, one and one equals two, and two and two equals four, that doesn't change. No matter what does, <laughs> government power? is, that always stays the same, right? And uh, geography stays the same. You are not going to change the continents on this planet. <laughs> what does change is history everything went fine except history Mm. that was always a problem because what I had read and was reading at home did not even coincide in the least bit of what we were being told Mm. so here our scan comes up and then I went out in front of the classroom out the door and I stood there for the next 15 minutes or so for punishment
1: because you were questioning their version that they were talking teaching you
0: exactly I was challenging I wasn't questioning I was challenging Mm. and that Mm. didn't work so good
1: (laughs) you know and so we have a history podcast and I'd be willing to bet there's a lot of people out there that think history is old news it's about crap that happened who cares but at the end of the day when one of the most destructive regimes in world history rose to power, there's, you can't change one plus one, right? What she's saying is the, the primary tool, the primary mechanism to hit a reset button on the way people think about what the regime is doing has to do with history. Mm. It has to do with your narrative, the story that you tell. Look at China, right? China covets Taiwan, from the American perspective, it seems pretty straightforward. Well, it, for people who, who look into it, when the, the non-communist nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek were defeated by the communists after World War II, the only place they had to escape was Little Island of Taiwan, and that ended up being a bastion of nationalism, and the mainland was dominated by communist China. And from the United States' perspective, it's like, those are two countries— Mm-hmm. You know, you've got, you've got communist China and that whole country the size of the United States, and you've got this little teeny island that, you know, some of the uh, people who didn't agree with that um, particular form of government left to live in. You listen to the Chinese version of it, and they're saying, look, this is a one-China policy. Taiwan is ours. Hong Kong is ours. It doesn't matter what their current form of government is. Look at what Russia is doing to Ukraine today. They're using history— To tell the narrative that the ukraine was never a proper country that it always belonged to russia and this idea that ukraine is a country of its own people its own culture is something that happened after the fall of the soviet union and it was a farce and it was a disaster do you think the ukrainians are being taught that do you think they're being taught you know (laughs) that their country is just this, this superfluous you know, borderland stuck in the middle of nowhere. So I guess what I really like about this clip, Ryan, <clears throat> is it reinforces why sharing these stories with people is so important because history is where you can truly mold minds and actually change the course of a nation for better or for worse.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say also uh, wasn't wasn't Hitler's interpretation of history part of where uh, he... Basically, started angling towards the Jews, you know, yes. and and basically, you know, trying to convince the German people that the source of all their problems, including you know the outcome of World War One, was because of, of of the Jews, and um, you, you know, so uh, it, it, it's frightening because you know what you what you can do with history is uh, especially when you start young with kids yes. who uh, don't know any better, <laughs> um, is that you can uh, um start you know blaming you know certain people or certain subjects in history for the current plights that you have and therefore you engender a lot of uh, animosity towards maybe the players that the regime wants you to uh, to look negatively at so
1: dude you nailed it i mean look at here yeah. we are in america in 2022 and we continue to have arguments and fights and debates over textbooks and yeah. wh- wh- what's really interesting is recently it's been over math books <laughs> when you have math problems <laughs> that you know, bring in certain social elements, but, but really the, the, the battlefield for the hearts and minds of people and the narrative that they share which dictates if a country is going to support certain things or not in their country it has to do with history so for for people who you know think history is just what old people look at to glorify the old days or you know to learn about times past it it's not true man it's 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 probably the most influential tool that uh, a nation has to develop um uh to condition, really, the behavior of the people living in it. And that's why it's so important to be as transparent as we can be with our press and with having different viewpoints of things so we can constantly challenge each other and make sure that we try to be as objective as we can.
2: You You know, know, um, I'm going to say a couple things here that are probably maybe a little bit cheesy, but (laughs) it's stuff we've all—so the the first statement I'm going to make is this. You remember what Winston Churchill said at the House of Commons, 1947, uh, he said, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now, yeah. he paraphrased that from a philosopher named George Cotillana. And at the same time, you know, what, you're, what he's trying to say is, if you do not study what has happened in the past, everyone will forget about it, and you're going to have to do it all over again. Another quote is, there's nothing new under the sun. Yes, I saw. In other words, you know, today we we sit here and we think to ourselves, oh, that was 75 years ago. (laughs) We're smarter now. We've evolved out of that. We've got technology that helps us make these decisions or whatever. That is not the case. We're all still human beings. We're all still capable of the same barbarism that we did back in uh, the 1930s and 1940s. Um, And then the last thing I'm going to say is this, and this is for the geoscientists out there. (laughs) Remember the axiom that we all studied in freshman geology, the present is the key to the past, Mm -hmm. right? Well, it's, you flip that around. The past is the key to the present. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what, that all this deals with. You have to look at what has happened before as analog to what can happen again. And I believe that what Marta is about to share with us in this series are things that, um, that we all just need to be aware of and uh, watch out for all around the world.
1: It it it, it it's really a cautionary tale, is what she is. is what she's going to share with us as we continue to go through this. And in fact, we'll roll the next clip. Um, this is um, uh, I don't know just a further development of what happened uh, to her as she got older under this new system.
2: When I
0: was was in fourth grade. We got a visit from a school superintendent and he was examining the children. And at that time in Germany, if you went to higher education, fifth grade was the first year of higher education. Hmm. And for that, you had to have a certain IQ. So here this guy comes, and he is doing his, whatever it is he's doing, and he's selecting four girls, one of which is me. And one of the other one was Renate, Elfriede, myself, and Erika. Well, at that point in time in Germany, that cost money. It wasn't free. What's free in life anyways? <laughs> but in any case, my father is... Oh, man, he doesn't like to hear that at all. After all, we are talking in the 1930s, I'm a girl, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to get married and have babies. What's with higher education here? So he has a fit, and he gets a letter, and he's told by the government. The way it works is he pays, and if he cannot afford it, the government will pay. However, he does not have any choice in his daughter's education. The government has made that choice for him. Wow.
1: So, if I understand you correctly, at this point, the government was like cultivating students and dictating what path they were going on to help the government. And the parents didn't have much say in it.
0: Correct. The parents had no say in it. At the time, my parents had a grocery store. And my father worked, my mother ran the store. So they were told that they had to join the party seeing that the store was under my mother's name, my mother had to join the party, or else the store would be closed mm-hmm. So she did as she was told. She said, yes, so the store did open. It was easy
1: so we don't we don't have a bunch of people helping us produce these podcasts. It's just Ryan and me. <laughs> that's it we We are the punk rock podcast man. We don't have people. It's just us. So when I look at my sheet that tells me when I want to share certain types of research with you guys, I'm going to change it right now, because I was going to save what I want to share right now for a few clips later. But after listening to this, after as we're producing this audience, I feel like now's a good time to talk about, about Hitler's rise to power in and, and, and the Hitler youth, because you're hearing her talk about how school has changed, how history has changed, how... People who wanted jobs needed to be part of this system, and you're going to hear subsequent clips that re- reinforces this. So for those who may not know, here's a brief, very high-level view of how Hitler came to power. So World War I ended 1918, and a year after that—I was surprised to read this, actually—in 1919, he joins um, what uh, became called as the German Germans' Workers' Party— um, this, which would become the Nazi Party at some point in a very near future. I'll get to that. So what surprised me about that <clears throat> is as um, a, he was a soldier in World War I, uh, he was gassed, he was decorated, he was a corporal, he was a grunt, um, but he had a gift for speaking, for public speaking. And when he joined this party, uh, from common sources, it reads that being one of its best speakers, he was made the party leader and he threatened to leave otherwise. So very, very quickly after World War I, uh, he's already connected with what becomes the Nazi party, party. And in fact, under his leadership in 1920, they renamed themselves um the uh, National Socialist German Workers' Party, which is commonly known as the Nazi Party. So very early in 1920. And despite it being often classified as a right-wing party, initially, it had many like anti-capitalist, anti-big-business, classist, anti-bourgeois elements. But it would become later where Hitler would initiate a purge of these elements, and it became reaffirmed as the Nazi Party's kind of pro-business stance that we see it develop into during World War II. Now, a couple of turning points. So this is 1920. In 1923, there's something famous. It's called the Beer Hall Pooch. And it happened in Munich, in a beer hall. A bunch of drunk Nazis, led by <laughs> Adolf Hitler, said, let's physically overthrow this... Um, this farce of a government that was called um, uh, the Weimar Republic after World War after World War One. And it failed spectacularly. And they threw his ass in jail. And he was supposed to go to jail for five years. And he ended up just spending about eight months. And what what what's amazing is it's his time in jail for trying to overthrow his government. This is treason, people. It ended up being what's often described as kind of um, a a blessing in disguise for him. The trial allowed him to garner national fame. It got his name out there, and it gave him the time to write Mein Kampf, which means my struggle in German. And it also uh, caused Hitler to rethink his tactics and say, we're not going to do this by force. We're going to become a party through conventional means, through political means, through political party. And so, you know, during the 20s, things in the economy in the world were going good, but during the Great Depression, which occurred in the 30s, and the crap hit the fan, there was a crisis. And this is when dictators take advantage of crises to, to rise to power. And really the pivotal year, so outside of 1923, where he got thrown in jail and wrote Mein Kampf, the real pivotal year is 1933. Okay, 1933 is when the Reichstag, their version of their um, Congress, was burned to the ground. And it was blamed on communist elements. Uh, There's a lot of controversy over who did it. And to this day, we still don't know. Uh, Some people think that the Nazis did it so that they could implement this. And at the time, the, the, the Nazi party had enough votes, enough support, that Hitler reluctantly was voted as chancellor, but the president... Uh, was was Hindenburg. Uh, Hindenburg, uh, Paul von Hindenburg, was a hero from World War I and a president, but he was old. And at this point, he wasn't uh, quite in touch with everything that they needed to do, and he actually passed legislation called the Reichstag Fire Degree, which serv- severely retailed, uh, or curtailed uh, civil liberties. And then Hitler went to Hindenburg and said, hey, you know, that's not enough. We need to do something more. And so uh, Hindenburg signed off on something called the Enabling Act of 1933. This basically allowed the Nazi Party to circumvent their version of the Senate, Congress, Supreme Court entirely. It put them on an emergency footing where they could do whatever they wanted, including put people in jail, put them in concentration camps, take people's property. This happened in 1933. The only moderating force in all of this was Paul von Hindenburg, and he died. So from 1934 onward, you had this freight train of uh, Adolf Hitler and a Nazi party doing whatever they want. So this has this is relevant to the, the Hitler Youth, because the Hitler Youth was formed uh, right around the time the Nazi party was formed in 1922, but 1923, if you guys remember, was the Beer Hall Pooch and Hitler was in jail and a lot of these Nazi members uh, were forced underground, but they came back with a vengeance. And I need to read some of this from a common source because I think it really speaks to um, why people kind of got involved in this movement. So in 1923, the organization had 1,200 members. In 1925, when the Nazi party was refounded after Hitler was let out of jail, wrote Mein Kampf, and reestablished himself, the membership grew to uh, about 5,000 members for for what would be later called the Hitler Youth. Five years later, the membership was 26,000, and by the end of 1932, it was at around 107,000. But what really blows me away, and Ryan and I were talking about this earlier— is When the Nazis came to power in 1933, I just told you about 1933 with, um, uh, with the various acts that were put in place because of the crisis from the Reichstag fighter, that, and then Paul Hindenburg dying the following year, uh, the, the amount of people who were part of the Hitler Youth Organization grew to 2.3 million people. million people. And there were all kinds of different youth movements that were occurring in the 20s and 30s and a lot more political and religious and whatnot. But because of these, uh, the Enabling Act of 1933 and the Reichstag Fire uh, Act uh, uh, that same year, Hitler and the Nazis were able to ban a lot of these other youth movements and actually force them into joining what became uh, the Hitler Youth. Uh, And in fact, it reads here, by december of 36 the hitler youth membership had reached over 5 million 5 million people out of a mm-hmm. out of a country with a, with 80 million at the time that same month in december of 36 membership became mandatory you can't make this up for Aryans. <laughs> and this legal obligation was reaffirmed in march of 39 which is getting real close to when um mart is talking about being a part of this which conscripted all German youths into the Hitler youth, even if the parents objected. We just heard Marta talk about her dad objecting to her being forced, because of her IQ, in higher education. As a girl, her father was reluctant to do that. We can talk about how things change over time and whether or not it's sexist. That's not, about, that's not what this is about. This is about state having power over your own kids. And, and and the path to that, and how quickly it happens. And parents who refused to allow their children to join were subject to investigation by authorities. From then on, the vast majority of German teenagers belonged to the youth. And by 1940, which is the year that um, that we're talking about right here, in 1940, Marta was nine years old. She was in fifth grade. She was being told to go into the state-sponsored higher education. By 1940, it had eight Million members, and for people who didn't join, they were forced to write essays that titled "Why Am I Not in a Hitler Youth?" Um, uh, people were not allowed to go to universities unless they were Nazis. They were not lo- to, allowed to have certain jobs, certain positions of power, uh, sports facilities. People who dropped out uh, later rejoined after they learned that they couldn't get a job in their country without being a member. And I'm going to finish this relatively long segment (laughs) with this. Despite rare instances of disaffection, because of the control that the Nazis had on people's well-being, on what they can do in their life, in their livelihood, in their jobs, the Hitler Youth constituted the single most successful of all the mass movements in the Third Reich. All of them. So, Ryan, did you have any idea before this that there were 5 million... kids conscripted pulled into willingly joined the hitler youth
2: you know what's what's interesting is when you look at the timeline that marta endured herself she mentions that when she was six years old in 1937 that was when the number went up to over five million people in the program that was when basically the school became the hitler youth school and her teacher that wore those beautiful hats was gone and the next day they had a Heil Hitler teacher in there and stuff literally Heil Hitler. She's literally. going to talk more about that
1: later, but yeah.
2: Yeah. And so, uh, uh, I, I was, I guess part of me, um, I, I didn't know, I didn't know what to expect with, with regard to what Marta had said in terms of how quickly things change. It doesn't surprise me in some ways that it would be abrupt. Um, you know, and one of the other things that I thought was interesting is that, you know, a large, a big reason why the numbers ticked upward, which is part of what you said about having to write essays for why I'm not in the Hitler youth. Right. It was because of peer pressure and coercion. And, uh, th- that was a large part of what caused the numbers to balloon so fast. Then of course, in 1939, the war started September 39 and, the numbers really, uh, you know, uh, grew to seven point two, like he said. So, um, she was right in the thick of this. You know, I mean, she was like she said at the beginning, the perfect age to be fully educated by Adolf, and it, uh, it,
1: and totally you think about nineteen thirty nine, after a series of diplomatic, primarily missions that allowed Nazi Germany to recapture parts of France, parts of its Western. Uh, like the sedate land um, um uh areas around Czechoslovakia uh they were able to do that by basically saying, "Look, you never should have taken this from us anyways they already were they already had a generation of kids who were being told that rightly or wrongly, they were being told that, so they supported it so in order to support what happened from nineteen thirty nine on when they you know the Germans invaded Poland who had done nothing to the Germans. Through a false flag incident where the Germans instigated a war, um, they were kind of priming the pump with all of this, all mm-hmm. this going on. And what I, I think some things that surprised me, if if I could give a high level summary at least from my point, is how early um, Adolf Hitler had joined what would become the Nazi Party, how quickly he rose to its prominent member, and how easily it was for him in the course of about one year to go to, to to actually have people in government sign decrees that took away so many of their rights that allowed him to be a dictator. It just happened so quickly. So I was going to wait a few clips to go over all this, but I think it's important for audience for who may not know to hear what was going on in Germany, why these conditions were created, why so many people were pulled into this. Now we're going to hear some of the consequences of some of the things that Ryan and I just shared with you in these next few clips. Well, this concludes episode one of the Marta Warner series. And thanks for listening in, Warrior Next Door listeners, T-W-N-D, the Warrior Next Door. Are we Twindies? Can we call the listeners Twindies? any rate, for those who enjoy our program, you're really going to enjoy next week's episode where Marta discusses what it's like as the Nazi regime takes more and more control uh, over the average German citizen's life and what effect that would have on her and her family. So thank you for listening. Please join us next week. You're not going to want to miss it. Hey, this is the spot in our podcast, usually reserved for us to share listener response, mail, comments, and we're going to continue to do that. But as our podcast has grown, uh, quite a bit, actually. We haven't even been online for a year, and we've got a very significant international audience. And I just wanted to take a little time to do a shout out to some of our international listeners. So the website that we use allows us to see where or which countries our, our podcast is being downloaded. And don't worry, there's no Big Brother thing. We can't tell you know, who it is or what the IP is or whatnot. It's it's very high level. And so uh, our, our largest overseas audience for reasons we don't fully understand, but entirely appreciate is Australia. And I know Ryan and I have always loved the Aussies. The United States loved the Aussies. I mean, come on. And the fact that We've got so many listeners there. It's amazing. Canada, that's right. An American is calling Canada an international country. I have that sensitivity. I understand why the Canadians get pissed off when Americans think of Canada as a fifty-four state. I grew up in Michigan. I love you guys. Thank you for listening. Uh, the third com- country that listens to us, third and fourth, as they're tied, is the United Kingdom and New Zealand, which is great. But some surprises that round out the top 10 of our international audience, and I just want to, again, if you're from one of these countries and you're listening, know that we appreciate it, and we actually marvel at the fact that people from across the world would actually take the time to listen to a couple of dweebs, wonks, history wonks from uh, from the United States talk about this. So uh, Japan, we've got a large audience in Japan, in Norway, in Ireland, and Sweden, in Thailand. And we just wanted to thank people from these countries um, for listening to our podcast. And in fact, For some of the countries that listen that were kind of on the other side of the conflict during World War II, like Japan and and Germany and Italy, we have listeners there. Man, we'd really love to get your impression on... Our interpretation of uh, history during this period. If there's elements of it that you think are flawed or too Western minded, uh, please share them with us. You know, we wanna we wanna reach out to our international audience and get a little bit of that love too. So, for uh, people uh, overseas who are listening, and if I click see all countries, there's we got you know we got listeners in Israel, France, Ecuador, Switzerland. Um, it's it's pretty amazing, and we do appreciate. Your, your listenership. So with that, um, I hope everyone can join us for episode two of the Marta Warner series. You're not going to want to miss it.